Currently, there are only 269 psalms in the world. S-O-M-M, psalm, short for sommeliers, you know, the wine expert, the one who can tell you all about wine and which wine to perfectly pair with the food of your choice. Only 269 of them in the world have attained the level four distinction of master sommelier. And that's since the award was being given in 1969, 52 years. That's an average of only five per year in the world. Now, can I trust you to keep a secret? Can I? I am a psalm. I'm a psalm. I, 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 I promise. And the wine that I am privileged to serve, best wine in the world, along with the bread that I am privileged to serve with it. So I might not really be a sommelier, but guess what? I really am truthfully a psalm, an S-O-M. I want you to listen to how our denomination's book of church order describes what I do. This is Presbyterian speak, I'm just telling you. It says, when a man is called to labor as a teaching elder, that's me, it belongs to his order to feed the flock by reading, expounding, and preaching the word of God and to administer the sacraments as he is sent to declare the will of God to sinners and to beseech them to be reconciled to God through Christ, he's termed ambassador. As he brings glad tidings of salvation to the ignorant and perishing, he's termed evangelist. As he stands to proclaim the gospel, he is termed preacher. As he dispenses the manifold grace of God, and the ordinances instituted by Christ, he is termed steward of the mysteries of God. S-O-M. I am called by God to be a steward of, of mysteries. The mysteries of God in the Lord's Supper. They are real and they are multiple. And they must be served up to God's people. So this morning, I want to be a faithful psalm, a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. The mystery this morning, just one, and that is our communion or our union with Christ this morning. The mystery which we will consider is our communion or our union with Christ. It's real. The Lord's table reminds us it's real so that you and I might live our lives in communion with Christ. We must live our lives in communion with Christ. So that's what we'll consider when we come once again uh, this morning to Acts chapter, 40, chapter 2, verse 42. So I ask you to take your Bible now. If there's, you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But turn to Acts chapter 2, and when you've found your place, if you'll stand so that we might hear, read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, only this morning, this is the word of the living God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And Father, we ask now that you would bless again this verse. To us, the, the depth of it, the devotion of it, Lord, the devotion of the, this early church to your means of grace, those ways that you have to, to pour out your grace on us as you take us to Jesus through them. This morning we pray, Lord, that as we talk once again about the Lord's table, your table, Lord, that you would bless us with the understanding of the message and the mystery of it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I just want to say, if the only thing that you remember from this morning is the number of psalms there are in the world, I'm going to be very disappointed perhaps a little depressed, steward of mysteries. As we continue talking about the Lord's Supper this week, first of all, I want to uh, possibly, uh, will definitely add to and make clear what may not have been clear last week. Specifically, I want to differentiate uh, between these words uh, mystery and mysterious and mystical. For us, not necessarily by definition, but at least by connotation, the word mystical often carries the nuance of magical, enchanted, of forest sprites and fairies and elfin people, dwellers in the mist and the things they do. That's mystical to us. And so mystical and superstitious become closely connected in our minds. And it's true that in some church traditions, the Lord's table has had and sometimes continues to have an air of the superstitious enveloping it. In fact, the term hocus pocus that we use originated from a perversion of the Latin words mumbled to people before the bread of the Lord's Supper was given to them. Words that were unintelligible to people who were receiving the bread. Words that no one bothered to explain, but simply because it was believed that no explanation was needed. No one needed to understand the message of the table, and so a sort of magic was believed to be in the cup and the bread, apart from faith apart from understanding. And so the table became imbued, infused with a superstitious, magical, hocus-pocus aura. This is far away from how the early church father Augustine viewed the bread and the wine. You know what he called the bread and the wine? Visible words. Visible words. The bread And the wine of the Lord's Supper carry a message from God. The same message as the gospel preached in words, only in a different form. So that we have a fuller understanding of the spoken words. The message that must be comprehended. Now I say all of that to say that when I talked about the mystery of the table last week, I did not intend in any way to communicate any sort of 
mysticism. And so we differentiate between our connotation of the word mystical, a word not used in Scripture, and the word mystery or mysterious, which is used very often in Scripture, particularly by the Apostle Paul. So just listen to this. As used in Scripture, mystery means this, the unmanifested or private counsel of God, God's secret, His secret thoughts, plans which are hidden from human reason, as well as from all other comprehension below the divine level. That's you and me. We are all below the divine level. The things of God above our pay grade. Mystery. They await either fulfillment or revelation to those for whom they are intended. As used in scripture, mystery means something too profound for human ingenuity. In other words, we couldn't make this up. As used in scripture, mysterious is that which transcends normal understanding and is itself a transcendent and ultimate reality. The mysteries of God, they are ultimate reality for all of us. So now I'm going to hearken back to our study of Deuteronomy. Anybody remember our four and a half years in Deuteronomy? Anybody want to go back? I want to go back. I would just do it differently this time. I would spend longer in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And so we see that there are secret things and there are revealed things. And the New Testament speaks in many places about the things that God has made known or that God has revealed to us. For example, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus Christ, has made him known. Christ has made God known. In the upper room, Jesus prays, O oh, righteous Father, I made known to them your name. And will continue to make it known. Christ has made known the name of God and all that encompasses. Romans 16, the apostle Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. And one more. Colossians chapter 1. I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I'll stop with those few. Though there are many more scriptures that speak of what God has revealed, what God has made known. The Lord's table, when we come to it, it's not about being ignorant. It's not about being kept in some sort of mystical superstition. 
It's about what we can know. It's about what God has revealed, what God has made known to us through Jesus. And even though at this time you and I see through a mirror dimly or darkly, the point is at least we do see. We do see Christ. We see him in the table. We don't yet see him in his glorious fullness. That day awaits. But we do see in the table the mysterious ways of God's love that he reveals to us in Christ. The Lord's Supper is so rich and it's so full of mysteries that have been revealed. Mysteries that have been explained. Mysteries that have been served to us. And I don't tell you this just for your information. It's to remind all of us of the greatness of our God and what He reveals to us in the bread and in the cup. How much He values us. How He, God, loves us through the bread and the cup. How He helps us with the bread and the cup in this life. John Calvin describes us very pointedly and with great precision when he writes this in his Institutes. See if it describes you. He writes, But our faith is slight and feeble, unless it's propped up on all sides and sustained by every means, it trembles, wavers, totters, and at last gives way. Here at the table, our merciful Lord, according to his infinite kindness, condescends to lead us to himself, even by these earthly elements, and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessing. Now, because we have souls engrafted in bodies, he imparts spiritual things under visible ones. Do you sometimes feel your faith is feeble? Do you sometimes feel that your faith needs to be propped up? That sometimes your faith trembles and wavers and totters? And sometimes maybe even you think if one more thing happens to you, your faith might just give way. The Lord doesn't want any of those feelings for any one of us, for any one of the people he loves as his treasured possession. So he gives us the table to strengthen our faith with the mysterious truth that's revealed through visible words. And so now, as promised, in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to to serve up this one mystery of the table of the Lord, and that is that we have communion with Christ. Isn't that what we very often call the Lord's Supper? Some churches refer exclusively to the Lord's Supper as communion. The word communion is not found in Scripture. 
But the Cambridge Dictionary defines communion as a close relationship with someone in which feelings and thoughts are exchanged. Communion. The Oxford Language Dictionary as the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. Communion. And so the mystery grows, does it not? That at the table we share closely with Christ, exchange with Christ intimate thoughts and feelings. The scripture behind this word communion comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Participation. Participation with Christ. It's that famous Greek word, koinonia, fellowship, sharing, unity, close relationship, communion. That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to remind you and me that we have with Christ, the glorious Son of God, communion with Him. And I'm going to circle back around to this word mystical, this time not the connotation of it, but the actual definition of it, because it's a word that some of the great Reformed theologians love to use about a mystical union with Christ. Mr. Webster, are y'all tired of definitions? Are they helpful? Mr. Webster defines mystical as having a spiritual meaning or reality that is neither apparent to the senses nor obvious to the intelligence. It doesn't make sense, does it? That Christ would want to have koinonia with us. He is the perfect, beautiful, sinless Son of God in the flesh. And so it is counterintuitive that someone such as he is, would want to have fellowship with people such as we are. Sin-riddled, sin-marred, sin-scarred, inglorious people. But he does. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. It's not apparent. It's not obvious to our senses that Christ would want to have communion with us. But nonetheless, it's true. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of our communion with Christ. Again, to quote Calvin, and you can never get enough Calvin. Can we agree on that? (laughs) That joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, are accorded by us the highest degree of importance so that Christ having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. Christ shares his gifts with us because of this mystical union that exists between Christ and his people. Exchange, communion. 
in an article entitled Entering into Mystical Union, R.C. Sproul writes, the Christian life is lived in the context of mystical union with Christ. From eternity, God considers the elect to be in Christ. Before our mystical union is affected with us in time, it's already a present reality in the mind of Christ. This mystical, vital connection we have with Christ. Perhaps the most beautiful description of it comes from Jesus himself. When he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. This intimate connection with Christ. He goes on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Because of this vital connection. Now, here's the good news. You want some good news? Do you? Here's some good news. We never have to do anything apart from Christ. We never have to do anything apart from Christ. The table of the Lord. As we eat, as we drink, it reminds us of the vital union, communion that we must have and we do have. Never apart from Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism. I love this stuff. (laughs) Question 60 talks about our union with Christ like this. So good. God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never had nor committed any sin. Is that not unbelievable? And myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. This is the great exchange of communion, isn't it? What's Christ's belongs to us. What's ours belongs to Christ. Listen, we can never forget, never forget that we, the church, you and I are the bride of Christ. That's what scripture says. We are the bride of Christ. He loves his bride so much. He loves us so much that he died for us. And so like in any marriage, what belongs to him, the bridegroom, belongs to us. And what belongs to us belongs to him. Koinonia, communion, exchange, the righteousness, all of it belongs to Christ. It's his. And he gives it to us. He imputes it to us. That is union with Christ. Our sin, that's what belongs to us. But he takes it, this this exchange. He takes it from us and he takes it onto himself. Koinonia, communion, exchange. That's what Christ does for us. And he did it all for the glory of his Father and for love for us, his church. Christ perfectly kept the perfect law of God for us because we could not keep it 
for ourselves. And because we could never perfectly keep the perfect law of God, we could never come into the presence of the Father. But the Father loves us. The Father wants us. So, Christ. So, the exchange. So, communion and union. And we're reminded of the exchange every time we come to the table of the Lord. Because you and I, or at least if you're like me, are likely to forget. Forget the words of the message. So God knew that we would need to to see, that we would need to see this koinonia, this communion, to smell this communion, to touch this communion, to taste this communion that we have with Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we are not on our own. We have communion with Christ. We do not walk alone. We do not walk alone through this world on our way to the next. We have communion with Christ. The table reminds us that we are united to him. Reminds us, reminds you and me. He has chosen, he's chosen you to be united to him. He has chosen to unite himself to you. He's chosen to unite himself to me and all that you are and all that I am, even the us that no one else knows about. Christ knows it. He knows it all. And still he chooses to unite himself to us. Jesus Christ chooses to save you and me through faith. It's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus Christ who saves you and me through faith. He chooses to have communion with us. He does not seek to be separated from you or me ever. And so, now, I act as a psalm. I steward this mystery. I serve this mystery to you. You have life-giving, life-sustaining communion with Christ. You have it. You must live in and out of this mystical union that Christ has with you and for you. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, what a beautiful mystery when we take time to contemplate it. The depth of it, the reality of it. That you, God in the flesh, would be intimately connected to us, living in us by the power of your Spirit, that you would make this exchange that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. We just receive it in faith. 
given to us by the Spirit of God. We thank you for it. Lord, remind me, remind everyone here, not alone, never alone, always connected with you, Lord Jesus, closely, intimately, fellowship, sharing, koinonia, communion. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.